wanted to reiterate uh, something that Sean said a little while ago, the Super Bowl, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So come uh, next Sunday after the service, join with us in the Super Bowl. Um, you are going to get a chance to meet, you know, got a lot of new staff, you're going to get a chance to meet them. Uh, you can ask questions <clears throat> about the church, things that you might want to know about City Church. And then uh, we're also going to give away autographed Colts footballs. Um, for that Super Bowl. I'm serious. We're going to give away autographed Colts football. So you want to make sure that you're here for an autographed Colts football. By the way, in case you're wondering, I, I have deflated my Bible today because I find that at 12 and a half pounds, this is very easy to handle. So I just want to make sure you guys know that in case you were wondering about that. Talking with Eric about the work that Community One is doing in impoverished neighborhoods uh, is very timely given where we are in the sermon series that we're in. For those of you who may be new here, we've been in a series called I Have My Doubts, and we've been dealing each week with a specific doubt uh, or objection that people have uh, to Christianity. Uh, In the first week, we dealt with the issue of exclusivity. And then we dealt with evil and suffering. A lot of people really struggle with that. How can, how can you believe in a good God when there's so much evil and suffering in the world? And then last week we dealt with the issue of absolutism. We were talking about absolute truth. This week we're going to take on a doubt or objection that I think is a very real doubt or objection that people have to Christianity, and it is injustice. Injustice. Many people feel that Christianity has been the cause of a great deal of oppression and injustice throughout history, especially toward the poor. Many people believe that Christianity has engaged in systemic, economic, and cultural oppression of the poor and the marginalized. Karl Marx, of course, popularized this idea when he said that religion is the opiate of the masses that it takes advantage of, that it disempowers the poor, and that it has, it has oppressed various races and classes, and there, therefore no one should believe its claims because of that. And I, uh, let me, l- listen, uh, I think it's very important for us to just take a couple of moments this morning and acknowledge that there is some truth. Um, unfortunately, there is some truth to this. I'm embarrassed to tell you that the seminary, that I attended uh, didn't let uh, blacks into the seminary until sometime in the 1970s. It's disgraceful. Some of you who are old enough may remember names like Robert Tilton and Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, and there are other TV televangelists like them now, and you probably know that many of the people who they persuaded to give them money that they used on themselves uh, were poor people themselves. People often refer to historical events like the 10th to 12th century crusades in which armies in the name of Christ violently reclaimed land in Jerusalem that Muslims had taken. Some people refer to the inquisitions in which people were forced to convert to Christianity under the threat of death. And then, of course, many Christians in the South did nothing about the disgrace of slavery. In fact, many of them, uh, many even somehow rationalized owning slaves in the name of Christ. All of that is true. And all of that is deplorable. Unfortunately, Christianity doesn't have a spotless human rights track record. And I think it's important that we acknowledge that, that we own that, 
and that we repent of that. But I'd also like to argue this morning that while there have been some horrible abuses done by people in the name of Christianity, I want you to understand, I want to argue this morning that those have actually been perversions of Christianity. In other words, while they were done in the name of Christianity, it wasn't, it wasn't real Christianity. And I want to show you that uh, this morning in a very, uh, very practical passage of Scripture. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to James chapter 2. And I know that you have a Bible, don't you? You've been bringing your Bibles. You're going to start bringing your Bibles if you haven't been. If you're, if you're new here, I just want you to know that I've been challenging the regulars here to bring their Bibles. Okay, somebody asked me, why don't, we have a, why don't we have a bring your Bible to church day? And I was like, you don't, we don't need a bring your Bible to church day. Come on, seriously. It's not like, it's, it'd be like having a let's all wear deodorant day or, or <laughs> let's all drive safely day. Well, you don't need a day for that. You're supposed to do that all the time. And so you're supposed to bring a Bible to church. I don't care if it's digital. I don't care if it's a hard copy like mine. Just bring your Bible to church, okay? So bring your Bible to church. For those of you who are new, we're going to put the verses up on the screen. For those of you who are regulars, close your eyes. You don't get to see the verses up there on the screen. All right. We're going to start looking at James chapter 2. Okay, James is in the New Testament. We're going to start looking at James chapter 2 and begin reading at verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom that he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Now, I have said throughout this series that this is not the kind of series where I take a passage like this and break it down into great detail because it's just we don't have time to break the whole passage down like that in this particular series. So we've got to kind of keep a 30,000-foot perspective. But I think it's probably clear to all of you just from reading, James is taking a group of Christians to task because they have fallen into favoritism and discrimination. They're favoring the rich, the upper class, uh, over the poor and the lower class. And as part of his argument, I want you to look back again at verse 5. I just want you to see what he says. He says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor? in the eyes of the world, to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, at first glance, I can imagine that some of you may feel like what he's saying is, well, only the poor can get saved. But he can't mean that because it's clear that even in the early church, there were both rich and poor who became believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's not saying that only the poor can be saved. So what does it mean? 
Well, I think what James is doing here is he's simply making an observation of fact. Yes, there were both poor and rich who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, but overwhelmingly then, and overwhelmingly now, it is the poor, the oppressed, the lower socioeconomic status who typically believe in Christ. In fact, if you were to track the movement of the gospel historically around the world since the first century, uh, it has been observed that the gospel seems, uh, over time, to move away from power and wealth. So, like today, where, where, where once in the past in, uh, that Europe and, and North America had the largest concentrations of Christianity in the world, today, the great majority of Christians are living in the southern hemisphere, like in Latin America and in Africa and Asia, and they're poor. And it's always been the case. So when James says that God chooses the poor, he's simply stating a historical reality. And here's what it is. You can write this down in those Bibles that you brought or in your digital Bible. You can make a note of this somewhere. And those of you who didn't, well, tough. Here's the note. Here's the point. Okay, this is the first point I want to make today. It's that the gospel is particularly empowering and compelling to the poor. The gospel is particularly empowering and compelling to the poor. Regardless of what perversions have happened in the name of Christ throughout history, James is saying that the gospel is particularly empowering and compelling to the poor. Now, why? Why would that be the case? Why why would James say that? Well, I want you to think for just a moment. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Here's, Here's what the gospel says to people. Okay? It says, the Lord of the universe loves you and died for you. And if you believe in him, he puts his spirit in you, like right inside you. He just puts it in your, in your soul, puts the spirit of God in your soul. And he gives you spiritual gifts so that now you can become agents of reconciliation in the world. You're on a mission now. And someday God, uh, someday the gospel says, someday God is going to put the world right and all accounts will be squared. That's what the gospel says to people. Now, on the other hand, here's what the secular worldview says to people, and in particular to poor people. You are here by a complete accident. Uh, At best, you are a cosmic accident. You are a bag of chemicals. And you lost out on the lottery of life Bummer. Now, which of those two worldviews best bestows cosmic dignity? Well, it's the gospel. Because of that, the gospel has always been empowering to the poor. But it's not just empowering to the poor, it's also the most compelling to the poor. And here's, here's what I mean by that. It is compelling in that it's not like normal Uh, kinds of religion. The gospel's not religion. It's not like normal kinds of religion and morality. In fact, Jesus was once speaking to a group of religious and economic leaders of the Jewish people. They were called the Pharisees. And he actually said to these people, these religious leaders and these economic leaders, he, he said to them, the pimps and the prostitutes will enter the kingdom of heaven before you. And why would he, you ask, well, why would he say something like that? Well, it's because according to the gospel of Jesus, there are two ways to be lost. 
Two ways to try to be your own Savior and Lord. Two ways to say, I don't need God. One is by breaking all the moral rules. You know, like sex, drugs, and greed, and and rock and roll, or rap, or hip-hop, or whatever, you know. It's just, it's breaking all the moral rules. Okay, that's one way. But the other way that you can be just as lost is by trying to keep all the rules. To the degree that you say to God, listen, you owe me. Uh, You have to bless me. You have to accept me. Look at how good I am. Look at all the good things I've done in the world. Uh, You owe me now. You see, one one approach will make you an addict. The other approach, here's the thing. The other approach, this is why that one, this is why that, man, this is why this one is so, um, so appealing. The other approach will make you a respectable pillar of society. But in both cases, you're rebelling against God. In both cases, you're a slave to self-centeredness and a pride. It's just in two utterly different ways. In both ways, you're trying to be your own Savior and Lord. You're trying to get control of your life away from God. But here's the thing. This is why Jesus said what he said. Here's the thing. If you go to a pimp and a prostitute, or a pimp or a prostitute or a drug addict, a person in the gutter, and you say to them, listen, you need God. You're you're a slave to your desires. You, You need the supernatural experience of the grace of God in your life. Likely, they will say, Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. I need something. On the other hand, if you go to a self-saver, to a high achiever, to someone who's morally upright, and you say, you need the grace of God in your life, they'll look at you and they will say, how dare you? I'm at the church every time the doors are open. Look at all the stuff I've done. I'm a respectable person in society. And you see, this is why so many middle and upper class people like religion instead of the gospel. Because religion says, live well, do your best to be a good person, and God's going to have to take you in because of that. And that, listen, that makes perfect sense to middle class and upper class people. But when you tell them the gospel, when, when you say, When you say to those people, when you say, you're a sinner and you will never save yourself, you're an absolute failure spiritually, they hate it. They might even throw you out of their church. But you tell the poor that, and they're like, I agree, hallelujah. Why? Here's the thing I want you, here's, here's what I want you to get. The gospel is always more compelling to those who know their inadequacy. Always more compelling to those who know their inadequacy, who understand that, who see it clearly, who know their failures, who know that they fall short. It's always more compelling to them. The gospel of Jesus is is the faith choice of the poor, of the oppressed, of the disempowered, because God chooses them. He delights to empower people that the world disempowers and overlooks. Yes. There are perverted forms of Christianity that have turned the poor and the oppressed off. I get it. And and what they've done is that they've taken Christianity and they've made it into mere religion. It's very different. 
But the pure gospel is always empowering and compelling to the poor and the oppressed. Okay? Now here's the second point that I, that I want you to see. It's not just that, it's, it's, not just that it's, it's empowering and compelling to the poor and the oppressed. Here's the other thing that I want you to get. This is really important for uh, many of you here today. If you really understand the gospel, okay, if you really understand the gospel, not religion, if you understand the gospel, it will transform the way that you respond to the poor. If you really understand the gospel, it'll transform the way that you respond to the poor. Uh, it'll transform your social identity. It will transform the way that you look at yourself. It will transform the way that you look at other people. It will transform the way that you see the poor. Uh, it just will. Okay, I want you to go back in James to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And I want you to look at verse 9. There's this, this great verse that I want you to see. This great little passage. James 1 verse 9 says this. Uh, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat, and it withers the plant. Its blossoms fall, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away, even while they go about their business. Now, this is one of the most, in my, in my opinion, okay, this is one of the most profound passages in all of Scripture. What James is saying in that little passage there is that if you understand the gospel and you're not just on a religious uh, self-salvation quest, the gospel has to transform the way in which you relate to society. It just does. It just has to. Why? Here's Here's why. Think about this. If you're poor and all your life you're told uh, you're a failure, and then you become a Christian, suddenly you, you think about this high position that you have. All of a sudden, you realize the ultimate person in the universe loves me, and he gives me dignity. And, and he says, my value to him doesn't hinge on my bank account or on my accomplishments. And I, I've become adopted into the king's family, Okay? On the other hand, though, if you're middle class or rich or an overachiever who has uh, worked hard and gotten into good schools and you've had a good job, he, the world tells you, it says, you're great, you're good, you can be anything you want to be, keep trying. But one day you become a Christian. And suddenly you realize you have this low position that you've never been in before. Because the gospel says, look, you may not be like the drug addict, but you're every bit as much a rebel. You're every bit as self-centered. You're arrogant. You're self-righteous. You're making the world a mess because you're trying to advance yourself above and beyond everyone else at any cost. See, religion and morality tell the middle class and upper class person exactly what the world tells them. If you try hard enough, you can make it. But the gospel says something completely different. The gospel says if you're going to have a relationship with God, you're going to have to go on welfare. If you're going to, if you're going to have a relationship with God, you're going to have to look at the homeless man. Notice how he smells. Notice how he doesn't have any resources. Notice how he's absolutely broken. He's got nothing to offer. And the gospel says, 
That's you, Mr. Middle Class, Mrs. Upper Class. That's you in God's eyes. But he embraced you anyway. And you see, once you understand that, there's no one to look down on anymore. That's why that's such a profound passage. The gospel is just, it's, it's an equalizer of everybody. And I want you to watch this. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 14. James writes this. He says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it in the same way? Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, uh, is dead. Now, I don't have time to go into a long explanation of the controversy surrounding this passage throughout the course of church history. I just want to summarize this morning by saying this. James is not saying that you are saved by works. That's not the gospel. The gospel says believe and you're saved. The gospel doesn't say believe and whatever you'd fill in the blank. With and. It doesn't say that. The gospel says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are saved. What James is saying, though, is he's saying, if you've gotten a hold of the gospel and taken it into your life, it will transform your life and how you respond to the poor. It will change how you handle your money. It will change how you spend your time. It will change how you respond to power. It will change how you see your own social identity. And if it hasn't changed those things, Maybe it's not the gospel that you've gotten a hold of. Maybe it's dead religion that you've got, gotten a hold of. And that's not the gospel. Notice the context of this passage is about how you respond to the poor. The gospel, you see, James is saying, if it hasn't changed how you look at the poor, then it's not the gospel. It's, it's dead religion that you've gotten a hold of because the gospel's not only empowering and compelling to the poor, but it also transforms the way you, middle class, upper class, respond to the poor. So I can imagine that there are some of you here this morning that are thinking, okay, um, maybe this is me. Maybe... I, I recognize I haven't been concerned enough about the poor throughout the course of my Christian experience. Um, this is changing. What, I, what I'm hearing today, what I'm reading in Scripture, uh, it, it's changing the way that I, I look at myself and how I look at the poor and how I understand my own social identity. And you're thinking maybe, how do I strengthen my grasp on the gospel so that it does really radically transform me as a person. And the answer to that question is consider Jesus. Do you realize that's, that's always the answer in Christianity? It's always consider Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. There is this great passage in Philippians chapter 2. Wonderful passage. Oh, don't turn there. I'll just kind of explain what it says. And it tells us in this passage that Jesus gave up all of the glory and all of the beauty and all of the praise and all of the adoration of being the crowned prince of heaven 
that he gave all of that up to descend in glory and become a mere human being. And then hang on a cross for our sin. All right? So let's make sure you understand. He's really wealthy. You could look at it that way. He's really wealthy as the crown prince of heaven. And he gives all of that up to become a mere human being. Understand, there, I mean, there's such, a, there's such a radical drop in glory when you go from being the crown prince of heaven to a human being. Okay? Much more than the drop in glory from, going, from being an upper class person to a person who's poor. I mean, infinitely different amount of drop in glory. Okay. So it says he gave all of that up to become a mere human being. Now, with that in mind, look back at James chapter 2, verse 2. Okay? James chapter 2, verse 2. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James is being very subtle here. He's being very subtle. But what he wants us to think about is the gospel. He wants us to consider Jesus. Because if you think about it, Jesus was the rich man. He was the rich man with the gold ring and all of the fine clothes when he was in heaven. And you and me and we, we were the poor filthy man sitting on the floor. But in this incredible, in this act of incredible grace and humility, Jesus said, I'll sit on the floor so that you can take the good seat. I will, be, I will become despised by men. I will be crucified as a common thief. I will be stripped of my dignity so that you can receive dignity. He's the rich man in the passage who gives his seat up for the poor man. And you're the poor man in the passage who gets to take the seat of dignity because of what Jesus did. See, the way to be transformed by the gospel is to consider Jesus. It always is. The vision of City Church is to bring spiritual and social and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond through a movement of people who are being transformed by the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. That's why we have these, if you look around the room, we've got these banners, same banners on this side, same banners on that side. Uh, it starts with believe. Notice, it doesn't say believe and obey. It doesn't say that, does it? Because that wouldn't be the gospel. That would be religion. It says believe on the Lord Jesus. It says believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You're saved. Okay. And then it says, then the second one says, experience community. Experience the power of a community of people who are being transformed by the gospel. And then it says, unlearn. And what that means is unlearn the way that you thought life worked before encountering Jesus. Before you encountered Jesus, you thought life worked like, you know, man, I'm middle class, I'm upper class, they're the poor, I look down on them, they look up at me, and then all of a sudden, when you encounter Jesus, you realize that the gospel changes all of that. It turns it all upside down. And it says there's no difference. No difference. You're all the same. 
And then we end with change the city. Change the city. Take the gospel that you've taken into your life and let it flow out into the city. Eric Cummings needs at least 25 people from City Church who are being transformed, so transformed by the gospel that they're being moved to serve the poor in Evansville. After the service, run, don't walk, to the table that he's at to say, yes, I want to help. But don't do it because I tell you to do it. And don't do it out of guilt or out of fear. That's not the gospel. That's religion. Do it because you want to be like Jesus, because you've been so transformed by what he's done for you, by the fact that he took your sin on a cross, that he descended so that you could ascend. Do it because you want to be like Jesus. Look, here's the thing. Uh, We don't wish to excuse all of the injustices of the past that have been done uh, by perversions of Christianity. No excuse for that stuff. But I will also say we can't change the past. We can't, I mean, there's nothing, we can repent, right? Yes, we can repent. We can't change the past. What we can do is this. We can be a church that allows the beauty of the undiluted and unadulterated gospel to so transform us that we imitate Jesus who became poor so that every single one of us could become rich. Would you bow your heads with me? Our Lord Jesus Christ, as I say every week, we are humbled by the truth of Scripture, humbled by what you have done on our behalf. And we affirm that it is an act of grace. Uh, Whether you're poor, whether we're poor, middle class, upper class, we affirm that uh, all of us needed your act of humility and mercy in dying on the cross for our sins. We couldn't have worked hard enough. We couldn't have done enough, accomplished enough, earned enough, whatever. We couldn't have done that enough to ever merit a relationship with you. It had to come only from you. Lord, for those who are here today who have already believed in you, Lord Jesus, I pray that, they, that the gospel would transform them, us, every one of us. And in transforming us, that we would understand that we would respond to the poor in a way that's different than we've ever responded to the poor in the past. For those that are here this morning, that perhaps they came in, maybe, they, maybe there's a chip on their shoulder toward the church, toward Christianity, because of things that have done in the, been done in the past. Lord, I repent of that. I repent of what I've done. I repent of what the church has done in the past. We repent. But, oh Lord, I pray that even today, hearing about the gospel. I pray, Lord, that you would soften their hearts, that perhaps today would be part of building a bridge back to that person. And I pray, Lord, that you would communicate in a way that only you can internally, that you so desperately love them. Regardless of what socioeconomic status they have in the world, that you so desperately love them. And Lord, transform us as a church thank you for the opportunity to work with other churches in this community. Lord, I pray for every church in this community that they would uphold and uplift the name of Jesus Christ. 
because we recognize you love this city and it is the cross of Jesus Christ that changes everything, even a city like this. You love this city more than any one of us do. We want to be part of what you want to do in this city. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship him.